to the To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Woo, I said that all in one voice and ran out. <laughs> but here we are, <laughs> week 30, it's where we're at. And uh, we are continuing into the book of Ruth. Uh, we are one chapter in, going to go to chapters two, three, and four, as well as start First Samuel today, and then we'll spend some more time in the Gospel of Matthew. And so, um, yeah, we, we left off where the book of Ruth had sort of hit its almost bottom point, um, right. with a little bit of hope left at the end of that chapter. And But it gets um, exciting in what we read. Yeah, and so we find out that there happens to be a relative, Mr. Dar- I mean... Uh, Boaz, uh, who uh, is uh, available and has this field and mm-hmm. might be an option because he's a relative. Therefore, following Leviticus 20 uh, or following the, the Leverite marriage law that he um, would have some obligation if he desired to uh, marry Ruth Mary and continue and the family line. The land. And so, yeah. um, so they head out uh, to um work the fields uh, following the, as we've read in the law, like they were required to not cut the corners of the field. So someone like Ruth, who um, is in a bit of a situation where she doesn't have her own fields, she doesn't have her own uh, means or provisions that she would be able to get food. And so, yeah. So um, we already see here that Boaz is a fairly noble or a reputable man, even just in the way that he leaves extra food for the poor, which may not have been common back then. His name means pillar or strong. And so there are all these things kind of pointing to, to like, this is a solid man and a man who fears God, it looks like, which is pretty cool to read thinking about how we're reading this during the time of the judges and everything that most people were doing. Yeah. And he's, he's greeting his workers in the name of Yahweh. Like there's so many indicators throughout this text. It's like Boaz is legit. And um, I think they want us to see that, that there were people in the land who were faithfully following what God had commanded. Right. Um, and so, and not only that, but we get like a little bit of like provident storytelling. It's like, she just so happened of all the fields mm-hmm. and all the places he ends, she ends up in Boaz's field. And um, he goes above and beyond in his care for her her. He blesses this foreign woman. He offers her protection. He, he brings her to come and eat with his fellow Israelite workers. Um, and, and not only that, but requires his workers to give her some grain at the end of the day. And so um, he, he sends her home arms full, well provided for. Um, and, and that was following the law. Like yeah. that is what the law should produce in people. Yeah. And, I mean, we see he's being a faithful man to God and, and we see through his generosity. I mean, he, I really, he's doing what he's supposed to do but in some ways he's going above and beyond because he's giving her more than he's required to Mm -hmm. and this is a good picture to us we are to do the same with our resources and had Boaz not been generous to Ruth really expecting nothing in return he would have missed out on this great blessing that God would give him through Ruth yep and so um, it seems like a few months go by because it sort of finishes up the harvest season. Um, and we get to the beginning of chapter three and Naomi seems to hash her plan, um, hatch her plan. Uh, and so there's some initiative to, to go make something happen and suggest that Ruth uh, at least go before Boaz and say, hey, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm available <laughs> uh, in terms of, of redemption, in terms mm-hmm. of uh Boaz being able to uh, be obedient to um, redeem uh, this this family, uh, to, to bring Naomi back in, to bring Ruth into the fold of what it looks like uh, to be an Israelite with their land and, and, and Elimelech's uh, lost, um, not Elimelech, 
Yes, Lamech. Yeah. Uh, well, the, Lamech. that is the father and yeah, and, and, and the family Nylon. line uh, that had gotten lost, and so yeah, yeah. So we see lots of uses of the word kindness and favor in this area, and it just seems like, especially Ruth and Boaz are kind of outdoing one another or outdoing others in kindness and Hesed, like we talk about God's, you know, that steadfast love throughout this passage. Yeah, and so her spreading her garment is sort of the sign of betrothal, like marry me and take me as your wife, like redeem uh, my family, redeem my husband and my father-in-law and, and, and my mother-in-law. Yeah, which is cool. I just want to say that that same idea uh, we read in verse 212 or in chapter 2, verse 12, where Boaz said it's to her, the Lord repay you for what you've done um, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so she's basically saying, hey, listen, you just blessed me and telling me to come under the wings of the Lord. Can I come under your wing as yeah. that blessing? Yeah, like, will you like, help fulfill this yeah, blessing? Can, can you act like the Lord to me? Yeah. yeah. Be the blessing that yeah. you spoke over me. And, uh, but Boaz seems to, to know of this other relative. And maybe this is why Boaz hasn't made a move up to this point. Who knows? But um, he knows that there's somebody else that in the sequence and order of things uh, should have kind of first rights or responsibilities to uh, uh, redeem this family. And so, um, he, he brings it up. He says, all right, uh, I'll deal with that. We'll, 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 we'll go to that relative first. And then uh, Boaz, out of, out of total respect and honor for Ruth, actually tells her to kind of leave in the middle of the night, make sure no one sees you. We don't want to start a rumor mill. Why don't you uh, hear some food and, and head home now? And uh, Naomi is faithful that this is all going to work yeah. out. And so uh, the very next story, Boaz does what he says he's going to do. And he brings this man into the story. To, to to see if he wants to redeem this family to, to, mm-hmm. to take um, the, the land and the family name or carry on the family name in, in a way and so um, he sounds excited like great I get this land and then he finds out oh but there's a Moabite that's going to come with it he's like never mind um, he, he wants no part in it and so uh, Boaz does what we're kind of set up for Boaz to do and he redeems uh Naomi's family, uh, this whole this whole family line. Yeah, and I mean this is a this is a really clear Christ picture here. You know, I mean Boaz, for the good of two widows and a relative, redeems a woman and the land that so that this man's name may be carried on. And we see Christ, who is under no obligation to redeem us, willingly paying the price to redeem us and give us a name and standing in his house and his family. Yeah. So Boaz here really is a type of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, we've we've been redeemed from our own spiritual poverty, and like let, let alone their poverty, but our spiritual poverty into Christ's family, and yeah. from hopelessness to to true hope. Yeah, um, it's kind of cool how these ideas of even redemption and and lover at marriage um, could be in the law as a picture to point us to our need to be redeemed. You know, I mean, all of these stories are all of these small little acts that we read about, whether in in the Old Testament law or different stories, are all pictures to help us better understand what God has done for us through Christ. Yeah, and Ruth really has no position of power. Like she can't make this happen. Right. It's only by Boaz's graciousness that this is going to take place. Yeah. Um, and she would be destitute without him. She would be destitute without someone showing her favor that she true. cannot earn yeah. or repay. And Elimelech's family would have been cut off from the family of God in terms yeah. of their land and everything. 
Um, but hey, it's a celebration. They get married. It happens, and uh, we even get this incredible blessing uh, on on Ruth that that uh, she is better than seven sons, which is like the greatest compliment you can give someone in that time. Uh, in terms of like that, sons were the ones to carry on the line. But she's saying, look, like this this woman who who has been here, who has been humble, who has shown you, has said Naomi in her loving kindness towards you. That's better yeah. than any of seven sons, which is so legit. Yeah. And a baby's born, which is awesome celebration. Right. And we find out uh, by the end of this book that there's this sort of important twist. This little story about these, these three people is not insignificant. It's not mm-hmm. just random three people that there's a tie in to the line of David um, in this whole story that, Uh, It's presented sort of like David's grandma is Ruth here, the Moabite. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think what we see here is, first of all, we talked earlier about how this story really does seem to be about Naomi. She comes up in every chapter and we see her start out living in Moab, going from being Naomi to becoming Mara, which is bitter, and then having that name restored for her and holding babies in her arms that these women call her child. Um, That's really cool. And then, you know... I think we see a lot of just simple faithfulness and honor to image bearers that we see Naomi and Ruth and Boaz all offering to one another. And this produced an impact that lasted for generations and that we are still talking about today. So it's a good reminder to not minimize your faithfulness in the little things because you don't know the impact they're going to have. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a character arc, I think, for Naomi, who comes back at chapter one, just she's she's like coming back empty, as she describes it. And then chapter two, her arms are full of food. Chapter three, her arms are full of food. And chapter four, her arms are full with a child. And um, in the midst of the judges, there are these faithful people that are trying to follow God's design for for people and community, God trying to follow God himself, all of it. And we see as like a highlight, like, look, obedience to God, particularly under the Mosaic covenant produces the sort of, of blessing tied into it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so this is like a microcosm story to go like, look, yes, it was a chaotic time in judges, but there were still people being faithful. And when they were faithful, God worked to, 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 to work through their stories and, um, yeah, so it's so powerful, I think, for those in that time to hear the story in contrast to everything that was going on. Yeah, and remember that we see this story wrapped up really, really nicely, right. uh, but they didn't feel that in the moment. And so when you are facing circumstances in your life where you feel a whole lot more like Naomi in that bitter season or Ruth where she was just basically, you know, begging for food, remember that God is still at work and God is still accomplishing a purpose and you don't know what it is and you don't really know who it's for. Um, but but we have this promise reward in heaven and we have this promise of the faithfulness and presence of God with us at all times. So don't get discouraged when you're in the middle of the story if you don't know how it's going to end yet. Yeah. Yeah. Our redemption and our inheritance is already secured in Jesus. And so, um, yeah, sometimes we shouldn't just apply the sort of almost prosperity type narrative from Ruth to our lives necessarily, but um, there are some parallels to, to Jesus's redemption of us versus Boaz's and yeah. um, trying to think through that of like, look, there's no, even on your worst day, Jesus loves and redeems you. And mm-hmm. um, that's so important to remember. Yeah. And so we're start 
you guys started for Samuel this week. Uh, we have a Bible project uh, video. If you want to walk, watch that just to give a little bit more framework, uh, those are always helpful. Uh, and um, this is a difficult book because we don't exactly know when it was written. We don't exactly know who wrote it. There's all sorts of guesses. Um, but um, it's historical narrative. So we know we're getting more historical documents. You have to think about how they're chronicling the growth and progress of Israel over time. Yeah. And, and even more interesting, we're, we're going to get with Samuel and Kings, we're going to get these stories and then we're going to, uh, we're going to get chronicles, which are going to retell some of these stories, but from a time removed from the stories. It's as if Samuel and Kings was probably written a little closer to when these things happen. And chronicles was like reflecting after mm-hmm. many years back on this moment in time. And so, um, that's important to remember too. We get a little more play by play, I think in these books than we do in chronicles. Yeah. And I think we get a few more character studies in this, you know, we're cautious to not put yourself, in the position of these different individuals, but we do learn a lot from their behavior on how we should and how we should not act in our obedience to the Lord. Yep. And and if you're reading a, a Hebrew Bible, a Jewish Bible, like this, this is coming right off of Judges. And so we went from the worst of the worst to this opening story. And, and not only that, but the introduction of eventually the kings, but this opening story of this faithful Hannah. And so that, that should even feel like a, a quick uh, juxtaposition of, of storytelling up to this point. Yeah. And so, yeah, that opening story, uh, we find Hannah, uh, another woman with a closed womb, which uh, should harken back to some old, older stories that we've already read. Um, and and it's told in such a way that we, we absolutely feel for her. Like she is, her sister wife mocks her. Uh, she's barren. She's distraught. Mm-hmm. You, you sort of feel her pain as you're sort of reading. It's, it's meant to invoke that in us. Yeah. Um, and she gets... So desperate, she offers her firstborn to the Lord. Yeah. Um, yeah. So far, oaths haven't always turned out that well in Scripture, but uh, I think she does hers out of humility and actual desperation in the Lord. Yeah. It's not out of pride like we've seen in other oaths. And um, yeah, it sets this, whatever God may give her, set, set this child apart. Yeah. And so. And you know, I, I just, yeah. I think Hannah's prayer of surrender and even God's opening Hannah's womb. Uh, God was answering Hannah's prayer, but his purpose in that was so, so, so much greater. And we see that in the same with Ruth and Naomi as well. Like Samuel would go on to be this like, I mean, really honorable, holy leader of Israel during a really significant time. Hannah didn't know that. She just wanted a baby, but God delayed that until a certain time was right. And then he opened her womb. And so again, like it's a good reminder of what we're asking the Lord for. God may not be answering right now, or he may be, but it also may have very little to do with us mm-hmm. or there may be a lot of other things at play in that. Yeah. We, we just don't, we're finite and have finite perspectives on history and timing and uh, who, what's going to happen down the line or how our actions impacted this whole larger thing. And so, um, yeah, sometimes it's really important and particularly in like suffering and pain and hurt to, to remember that perspective yeah. of of my trials might be producing something down the line. It might be producing something in someone else right now. Right. And, um, and, and it gives you a little more perspective on how God may use a suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they give Samuel to the Lord. Yeah. Um, basically he sort of moves into Eli's family in some ways and works the, the household or works the temple with alongside Eli. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so they, they kind of leave him there and, and they have to return to give him little outfits every now, every year. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, uh, but we get a prayer from Hannah, uh, probably one of the most beautiful kind of prayer 
songs in scripture, I think. Yeah. Um, it's really significant. We basically get a summary of, of the kings here and the it, stories. It's prophetic. It's accusatory. Yeah, it's really I, I was powerful. saying it's kind of like a Disney movie or Lord of the Rings. Like you, you get these people that break out in song in the beginning and it kind of tells the tale of the whole movie. Uh, and so, um, yeah, you get that in First Samuel. Yeah. So as you continue to read, I'd encourage you just to kind of keep your finger in First Samuel 2 and go back and say like, oh, this is what Hannah was talking about here. And maybe she knew it, maybe she didn't. But yeah, um, yeah we're introduced to so many themes, themes around humility, themes around like it's not by power and might that things are going to be accomplished. And like those are going to play out as the book goes. And so mm-hmm. it's really important to see that. Yeah. And also her total devotion to the Lord, which was so uncommon during this time. She's yeah. saying there's none holy but God. There's no rock like our God. And if you remember opening the, the Gospels, like Luke, where we get Mary uh, kind of quote some of Hannah's yeah. song here, like Mary straight up indicting <laughs> Israel at the time, just the same way Hannah is, where it's like, mm-hmm. look, we're coming out of a time of a judges, but there's going to be a king and God's going to do what God's going to do and set this thing right. And there's going to be kind of judgment on those that have come before. And I think Mary's not, um, I think Mary's very intentional in her statement there of like, here's where Israel's at. It's not where it should be. And Jesus is coming to, to set things right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's, it's powerful of the author to write this, but really God to use, yeah you know, one of two wives who was barren for a long time to speak this kind of prophetic word and indictment over all of Israel. And to open a book about kings with a a woman, I think is not insignificant either. Yeah. Um, And so we hear about Eli's uh, worthless sons as Mm -hmm. uh, as the ESV titles this section, Uh, but they're priest kids, but they don't know the Lord. It's a rough start to their story. Um, They're stealing fat, which is like God. They're stealing from God. They're not just stealing from the people. They're stealing from God. Um, There's all sorts of stuff we're going to find out, or you found out as you kept reading, there was like either some sort of temple prostitution or maybe they're just raping these women uh, outside the temple. Uh, and so they are presented as awful. They are the worst, which makes us feel yeah. like a holdover from the book of Judges. Yeah. And so Eli rebukes his sons, but it's kind of like he's an old man and hasn't said anything before. And to them, it just falls on deaf ears. They were like, no, okay, great dad. Uh, we're just going to keep doing what we're going to keep doing. Um, right. I mean, their actions multiple times in the Levitical law would have caused them to need to be whether it was dishonoring their father or how they were treating women or even their behavior in the temple as priests. But Eli, I mean, I don't know all the circumstances and I know that parents cannot control all their kids' decisions, but I don't know that Eli really even believed his rebuke. He was just kind of like, stop doing this. Yeah, it it didn't seem... If he was a priest really worried about his sons, it seems like he would give a little bit more than what we got. Yeah, or he was passionate for the justice and the glory of God. Yeah, It doesn't seem like that. And so, which causes the Lord to reject really all of Eli's household in the process. Um, And um, yeah, it's a sort of like God enters and says, all right, like we're, we're, we're moving on and there's going to be a faithful priest that's going to, um, it's going to work now. Yeah. So, I mean, there's verse 29, this prophet or God says to him, uh, why do you honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Eli is losing his position and his role as a priest and a leader because he is honoring his own family above God. Yeah. 
And while everything's sort of a downhill with Eli and his family, we we are interjected with this little statement where we hear that Samuel's working with Eli, uh, that 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 Samuel's being faithful. We find out that Hannah's replenished with five more children. Uh, they're sort of like um, Hannah and Samuel are being moved up the chain, while Eli and his sons are yeah. being moved down it. Yeah. And so, uh, jump to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So we kind of pick up right in the middle of Jesus um, going around Galilee area, and uh, we get this sort of a sandwich story to start where uh, Jesus is told uh, about a synagogue leader's child who's in need, uh, but while on the way gets interrupted by this woman who tried to grab the, the, the fringe, the corners, the tassel of his garment. And it's very specific to include that, but uh, in Malachi 4.2, it says, uh, um, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And a lot of people took that to, to, to not a lot of people, there's a, a group of people that thought that when the Messiah comes, um, that in the corners of his garment, in the corner of his, of his zits, it's the, the little kind of um, a, uh, shawl type thing that they wore, that if you just touch that, that it would bring healing. And so this woman seems to think Jesus is this Messiah, this one promise from Malachi 4, and that if she just touches it, even if that seemed um, mystical or supernatural, uh, she thought, if I just touch it, um, this will happen. And so, um, yeah, she gets healed in the process. Mark includes a lot more dialogue. We'll deal with that when we get to Mark. Yeah, but it's noteworthy that Jesus stops helping this person in power and authority in order to help the outcast. Yep. And it looks like you know, the, the ruler's child has died or the ruler's child does die, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of mourners by the time Jesus gets there, which is a cultural norm. You'd, you'd have mourners. You'd even pay mourners to, to, to play dirges and to pray prayers. And, um, but Jesus does the, one of the most significant things he does, which he raises this child from the dead. Yeah. And, you know, we don't know the heart state of this synagogue leader, but we've seen over and over how many religious leaders really oppose Jesus. And let's say that's the case with this guy. Well, he opposed Jesus until he needed him. And so sometimes God is going to allow circumstances in our lives that will bring us to the end of ourselves in order that he can show his power and work in us and through us and bring us to repentance. Yeah. So the suffering is oftentimes the path to knowing the Lord and holiness. Yep. And then immediately, uh, right after raising some of them dead, there's a couple blind men and, uh, uh, Jesus has asked him, do you think I can do this? Like, like, yes. Like we just saw you raise a, 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 a dead girl. Yes. Like what a, what a question, but, um, he kind of sneaks them into the house before he heals them, which is interesting. Cause you get the sort of like secretive nature of his healing. And, um, when he was in the garrisons, he had no problem with the person going to share, but, uh, here in this kind of crowd, um, he seems to be a little more secretive. And I think because like, as people find out there's a bunch of healings going on, it does affect Jesus's ability to do what Jesus is going to do in some ways, uh, in terms of, the crowds coming uh, in terms of all the people that, that start coming around or that the leaders start using it against them. Like, right. like we're going to see where it's like, no, he does this in the name of Beelzebub. It's like, what? you just totally missed it. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. And now a misinterpretation of this passage would be to say, well, if you're not being healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Um, I don't, that's not, that's not what Jesus meant here. There's enough other, there's enough other scriptures to counteract that belief. And so, um, yeah. But there's a statement that they make in calling him the son of David. I mean, they're declaring, they believe he's the Messiah. They believe he's it. Um, and Jesus does, um, heals another who's unable to speak. And, uh, and, and this is where the leaders are like, um, 
no, you you are. This is demonic action. It's like it, they're they're totally lost on Jesus's miracles uh, as soon as he's doing it here. Yeah, I mean they can't deny that there are miracles happening, but because they can't fit it into their box of what they understand the law or following God to be, they attributed his powers to Satan. And so Jesus continues going around teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Mm-hmm. Like that is a significant statement that Matthew yes. makes about what Jesus is doing. Uh, yeah. he's, he's proclaiming the gospel and healing. And um, and then he gets a, bit, a statement around the sort of sheep without a shepherd, which uh, is an analogy throughout the prophets, uh, as we'll, we'll see when we read through. But um, it's usually in, in the prophets an indictment on Israel's leadership. Uh, almost all of them are, are um, dealing with the, the lack or the corruption of leadership uh, in Israel. And I think Jesus is doing the same thing about the same dang crowd who just said, you're, you're doing this demonically. Those are the leaders. And I think Jesus is going like, look, like there's all these people who have need, who, who are wanting to be healed. And you're not doing that, which is picking up on Ezekiel 34, where it says the weak, you have not strengthened the sick. You have not healed the injured. You've not bound up the stray. You have not brought back all the stuff that Jesus literally just did when he's speaking about um, the, the sheep without a shepherd and 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 so there's all these people who who simply need the leadership the faithful god-centered leadership mm-hmm. which we've just watched in the old testament israel struggle without oh, yeah. faithful god-centered leadership and 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 i think that leads to this statement around the harvesters like i've always heard this as a missionary text and i think it can still be applied that way but I, I do wonder too if Jesus is going okay. Like there there is a there is a crop of things that have been seed that has been sown. There is there is a, a faithful crop that's already out there. We just need those who are going to work it and 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 a, a sort of prayer for faithful God centered leadership and of shepherds. God's people. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then we start chapter 10. We get an introduction to the 12 apostles. If we go back to the podcast about in Luke, uh, I talk about each of those apostles and their names and why this is like a really haphazard collection of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, And then we find Jesus sending them out. This yeah. is sort of Jesus' second long discourse in the book of Matthew. So he's already given them authority to do the work that he was doing, and he sends them out and tells them to go and find a person of peace and not bring anything with them. Yeah, they sort of have to. They have nothing. So they, they have to rely on the generosity and hospitality of people. And he even tells them, go go to your countrymen. Don't go to the Gentiles. Like, go to mm-hmm. your own people. And, and if they're following the law, like, there should be hospitality there. There should be uh, sort of almost low-hanging fruit. Uh, but uh, Yeah, which is, you know, but this idea of shaking the dust off your feet was something they would do, Jews would do when leaving Gentile nations. And so Jesus telling them to do this to their own people if they don't find a person of peace is a really harsh statement. Yeah. And he's again starting to delineate between just because you are um, – a Jewish person mm-hmm. or because you follow the Jewish religion does not mean you are one of my people. Yeah. You may wolf. not be a sheep, but you may be a wolf. And so, um, yeah. yeah, that's sort of the warning is, Hey, my disciples, you guys are like sheep, but the people out there, even though they might be your own countrymen, even though they might call in the name of Yahweh, even though they might say they follow Yahweh, that they are going to be wolves. Yeah. And so persecution is going to come. And this is just an honest message from Jesus, which is, um, Sometimes uh, so exhilarating. I always find it interesting some of Jesus's response to like someone being like, "Jesus, I want to follow you." And, and in modern day America, we'd be like, "Great, that's awesome! Let's get you baptized. Let's do all the like." Repeat we'd be after so me, excited. This little prayer. Yeah, and and Jesus is like, um, 
are you, are you willing to do, are you willing to count the cost? Like he sort of always gonna pauses be people that are overly excited. Um, and, and so he's just real sometimes. And I think here's just one of those cases like, all right, I'm sending you out, but guess what? It's going to be hard. You're going to preach good news. You're going to go and, and talk about these things about my kingdom. And some people are going to hate you for it. And, and I, I think he's, he's just being real that, um, his message is not going to hit everyone in such a way that they're all going to be excited about it. And there's going to be some that, that hate it and, and hate his disciples for it. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I don't know that this, I don't think this doesn't fall on deaf ears for us, but it is hard for us to understand because we don't, we don't live in this place of facing that same kind of persecution at this moment that we do um, probably have some different circumstances that are persecuted, but we need to remember this because we don't know what will come and uh, we don't know what our lives will continue to look like. We have to be prepared to lose all things, uh, but also take heart that we will, we will gain everything as well. Yep. And, and Jesus just tells them like, all right, suffering, punishment, pain, death from, from some other people, like, don't, don't fear that. Like, that's not the main concern. Be concerned with what God could do and, yeah. and have a right direction for your fear. Your fear shouldn't be down here. Your fear should be God who, who can destroy both body and soul. Right. Do not fear is the most repeated command in scripture. So it's clearly something we need to get and internalize. But when you look back again at the Old Testament, it talks so much about who we are to fear and we are to fear God or to uh, reverence God for what he's worth. But it also seems common that when we get some of those statements, we also get sort of positive statements too. And um, even when the angels like do not fear um, and, and, and sort of that, 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 that like there's mercy, there's grace. And so we're told that too, like, Hey, a bird, bird isn't worth much, but God cares for it. So mm-hmm. how much more will he care for you guys? So as you're going out, fear God, but know that God actually cares for you too. And so, um, and then we get statements around uh, that, that he's come to bring, um, not just, not peace, but a sword. Um, and, I, and I think he's picking up on, on uh, Micah 6, 7, because he goes on, or Micah 7, because he always goes on and quotes the, the father against father, the daughter against mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Um, that's in Micah 7. And, and I think that that text says, like, the day you're watching, the punishment, uh, your, your punishment has come. And I think Jesus is saying, look, I've come to bring that sword. Mm-hmm. I'm like the, the, the prophecy in Micah, but then where Micah keeps going with that line is Micah, Micah speaks of that day that's going to come. And Micah's statement is, but as for me, I will look to the Lord and I will wait for the God of my salvation and my God will hear me. And, and so uh, I think this is encouragement to his disciples of going, look, things are going to be crazy. People are going to hate you for it. Uh, things are going to, you should go, but proclaim the gospel, but it's going to turn this world upside down. But don't worry, like, wait for me. It's, I don't think, I think sometimes people use this text from Jesus as a excuse to just be jerks and to use the gospel to be a jerk. Um, but yes, the gospel is offensive to plenty as we just said, but uh, I think where, where Jesus is after in this quoting of Micah is actually more pastoral for them, uh, than trying to talk about the upheaval of all things. Yeah. I I feel like I end reading this section, just like being like, Jesus, help me, Lord, help me. There are so many calls to die in this. And, um, sure. Maybe I imagine in my head and think I could do it once, but can I do it every day or every moment of every day? And that is the call. Um, and the answer is no, (laughs) I can't, I fail, but this is what comes back to like this good news of the gospel is we need Jesus and we need his grace. And so we need to go to him every day and say, Lord, I can't do this apart 
apart from you. Help me and thank you that your blood has covered me for the times that I fail. But give me the grace and give me the help to be completely loyal to you, denying all of my own will and just embracing your will no matter what the cost. These are impossible things he's asking of us. But we know Jesus says with with man, this is impossible, but not with God. And Jesus kind of wraps up his <clears throat> sermon here with, uh, I think, a similar wrap-up to the Sermon on the Mount, where it's like, all right, like, in, in Sermon on the Mount, it was, if you do these things, like, when the storms come, you'll, you'll be ready for them. And if you don't do these things, the storms come, you won't be. And here, I think he's sort of like, all right, like, if you do these things, there's a reward. And now that reward might be a heavenly reward, but there's a reward for this. So, so live this out. And, and um, it's sort of a practical, like, take-home. Yeah. And again, there's so much faith required in this. And when we hit the epistles in the New Testament, we'll see over and over and over and over again, there is a reward. It is in the kingdom to come. It is in the life to come. And so you have to live every single day in your suffering. You have to endure and you have to do it all by faith, knowing that something better is coming coming for us. Yep. But we have to have faith right now. Yep. And so we're, we're told John the Baptist has some followers and John just went from behold the Lamb of God to are you really the one? It seems like quite a short shift. Um, but um, Which Jesus is funny because had- like John experienced and knew the truth of God in the actual wilderness where so many people find that's where they have their difficulties and temptations. But then for John, it was, I guess, in the prison of Herod's yeah. dungeon. And and. and- yeah, John, I mean John's fiery, and as I said, like in the in when we first talked about John, like I think John has this very traditional Jewish two phased eschatology is expecting Jesus to come and to take everybody out and to deal with all this, and then Jesus goes around and heals synagogue leaders' daughters and centurion servants and all these people that John's like John John's been calling brood of vipers and things like that, and so um, I, I think he just wasn't what. John was expecting that Jesus would come and do these things. And, and I think Jesus is here saying, no, I've come to, to, to the blind. They would receive sight. The lepers would be cleansed. The deaf would hear. The, the dead would be raised up. And then he leaves off a little bit of a quote about um, uh, an opening of the prison for those who are bound. And I think that's why he's like, John, I love you. I hope this is not a, st- uh, you're not offended by this, but that's not what I've come to do. Mm-hmm. Exactly what you think, John. Um and and it was interesting because then I think he goes on to defend John. It's sort of like, all right, he's not doing exactly what John would want to do, but he still loves John. And John should still be worthy of respect as as one born. No one's been greater than than him. And he was like Elijah. And he, he did come out and, and preach repentance to these crowds. Um, it's a pretty wonderful epitaph because this is really the last we hear of John uh, yeah. other than his death. And so, yeah. And, you know, the other point here is that Jesus is basically like, you can't win. The religious leaders don't like John because he follows all the rules, and they don't like me because I break all the rules. I mean, not that Jesus really did that, but uh, there's something good, I think, about walking the line where we're too liberal for the conservatives and too conservative for the liberals. Yeah. Um, Jesus were, and John were both obedient to the Lord, but it looked different because they had different calls and purposes on their lives. Yeah, and he, I think he's quoting Micah 2 when he speaks about sort of the violence and, 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 and the, the kingdom of the violence, and as if John opened Opened, kicked open the pen gate in some ways, like Micah 2 speaks of. Um, but then Jesus recalls Aesop's fables and quoting about this flute that you wouldn't dance for me. Uh, and all that is like, look, I tried to warn you. Like that's that's sort of the, mm. the fable itself. I tried to warn you and you didn't re- you didn't act and now it's too late. And so um, I, I think he's he's speaking this now, to particularly the leadership, as if it's like, look, like you, you should have known better and, and now you're mi- totally missing it. Like we're, we're telling you these things right now and you're still missing it. And, um, 
and then he speaks all these woes uh, to these cities, to Corazon, Bethsaida, Capernaum. It's important. Like this is a triangle of some of the most um, Pharisaic and religious towns uh, possible. Like these are the people who think they're doing it all correctly, mm-hmm. and uh, Jesus comes along with a pretty strong condemnation. <laughs> like yeah, you've got it all wrong. <laughs> yeah, and and um, he he talks about Tyre and Sidon and so- Sodom and like Ezekiel twenty eight speaks about these and like all the ways that those cities were corrupt and not doing it right and they did receive judgment and now Jesus is here going look look I've I, I've come to perform these miracles and you guys aren't getting it. I'm speaking the truth to you. You're not getting it. If I had done this to even these corrupt cities who uh, were doing all these wrong things, like they would have caught it and you guys aren't. And I, and I think he's also indicting them the same way that Tyre and Sidon would have been indicted as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, in the same way Sodom is, Ezekiel also speaks of Sodom. He says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Uh, they, thus, they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. And I think Jesus is just pointing out all that for these cities. Like you guys are like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and, and, and they would get it and you guys aren't and you guys are acting the same way as them. So repent, change. Yeah. And then, uh, and then also, he takes what yeah. feels like a turn, even though it's, I mean, it's a really beautiful wrap up. Yeah. And so he speaks all these condemnations and I think it's also a way to like go, all right, that feels so heavy, but come to me because it's not like my yoke is easy. My, my burden is light. Like the teaching of other Pharisees will weigh, or of rabbis will weigh you down with the law, with trying to follow all these things, with all these rules about Sabbath and, and, and not caring for the poor and doing like, no, I've, I've come to, I've come with a, a light burden, which is just believe. And in me, you'll find rest, which would have been, um, uh, almost uh, heretical to hear that in some person, like Yahweh is the one who brings rest, and Yahweh's land is the one who brings rest. But Jesus goes, "I will give you rest," which I think mm. is just fantastic. And, and so, um, yeah, I, and I think Jesus ultimately, by what He does on the cross, provides that that true rest, the the one of. It's not. I don't. I'm not going to live up to the law like every other rabbi has spoken. Jesus has spoken in such a way that says, "No, the law is not. Um, I will fulfill the law for you, and now you are free." Um, and it makes yeah. this yoke easy. There's rest in that. I don't live in a constant state of, "Am I doing enough?" Right. Um, I mean, we've just seen how difficult it is to follow Jesus. This is a hard path. We have to risk death. We have to carry our cross. We have to be hated by others, but. The, earn, the burden of having to earn your own salvation is so great that even with the challenges and difficulties that accompany Christianity, it is restful and it's easy compared to working for salvation. Yeah. I always find it <clears throat> pretty comforting that the first thing Jesus hears before he goes out for the three years of ministry is at his baptism, the Father says, and you am well pleased. And mm. um, I think it, I think there's some parallels to our walk with Jesus where it's like, look, the starting position of any ministry work and all the things that the disciples are going to be sent out on is the position of you're accepted. You, you are God is pleased because of Jesus's work, pleased in you. And um, yeah, I, I think we, we operate out of a position of, of victory already. And, um, and I think that gives us rest and peace that Jesus offers. Yeah. So Proverbs 31. Uh, yeah, this, yeah, I have a lot to say about this (laughs) chapter and I think probably most women who grew up in the church or have been around 
Christians for long enough have been taught a lot about it. I mean, there's whole women's ministries named after yeah. this chapter. Yeah. And it's like, people are like, I'm a woman. What should I study? Proverbs 31. But here's the deal, you guys. I, we have we have in many ways misinterpreted and misread this passage. The audience in this passage, this letter is to a king. It's to a man. It's not to a woman. And here we have King Lemuel, and his mom is telling him how to rule a kingdom with honor and integrity. So she talks to him, don't indulge in the flesh through alcohol and women. Care for and speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. And find a wife that is going to compliment you and support you in your role ruling a kingdom rather than distracting you from it. Think of like Delilah versus Ruth. They're different stories. Um And the part about the woman who fears the Lord is actually written as a chiasm, which we've talked about. And the center part of the chiasm is talking about the husband. It says the husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So it is not how a woman is to behave, but it is about the honor that a man will receive because of the character of his wife. So, and really on top of this, there is one command given and it's given to the husband. You give your wife the fruit of her hands. So, uh, this this passage is not a list of how to be the perfect woman, though there are many, many things we can learn from it. But it is a command to the man to be thoughtful about who he marries and to show her honor and praise in their marriage as she supports him and compliments in his him in his leadership. I don't know if I could say anything. Better. Um well and 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 I, I do think it's interesting that right off of this, uh um or right off the end of the book of Proverbs, we're introduced to the book of Ruth, at least in the Hebrew Bible. And so um I think it is connecting the dots of like Boaz and Ruth and Lemuel and uh the the, the Proverbs thirty one woman that's being presented here. And um yeah, it that Sometimes, yeah, it becomes this bar that that some ministries teach about. And I just think that's totally missing the point of Proverbs 31. Yeah, I know. I mean, like we just read about how our yoke is easy and our burden is light. And then women hear this and they're like, well, you have to wake yeah, up before exactly. <laughs> the sun comes up and yeah. weave Now here are all the things you need to do as to be a good godly woman. Yeah. Yeah. It seems so lost on the, on the actual point of it. Yeah. All. And I also just want to say quickly, one of the things I've been looking at as we've looked through Proverbs is every time, what does wisdom look like? Because Proverbs is a book about wisdom. So here we read that the that one who lives by the wisdom of God, they fear the Lord. They live with an eternal perspective. They put others' needs before their own, your family and also your neighbors. And then you care for and you speak up for those on the margins. That is a wise life. Yeah. Yeah. That book is Proverbs 31 is connecting with both our Ruth reading and our Matthew reading. So it's yeah. great. Psalm 140. So the enemies of God are back it seems like and at least the, the writer which most believe is david is like um god i hope you will be faithful for <laughs> and deliver yeah yeah i mean i think david is really setting himself apart from the wicked here he's choosing to maintain his conviction and righteousness despite what everyone around him is doing he's asking god for protection in the midst of these struggles and don't we also need to do this. We need to be asking God for clarity and discernment to know what is of God and what isn't. And then just asking God for protection from those wicked behaviors. And I just, I really love how it ends with David pointing out that God is for the afflicted and the needy. Yep. yep. It's, a, it's a pretty common theme throughout all the scriptures we've been reading. And then Psalm 68, we kind of get a little section out of Psalm 68. It sort of uh, at least speaks in the section somewhat about power, God's power over nature, God's power over his enemies, um, sort of the evil and the righteous uh, kind of themes. Yeah. So again, being able to distinguish what is right from what is wrong is important for us to be able to do as followers of Christ. And I think um, sometimes the lines have become a little muddier than they should be for us. So next week, 
What should we look out for? Okay, so in the Old Testament, I think the, like the the main point or the main thrust of the book is actually coming in what we're going to be reading next week. So pay attention to God's presence and is speaking to his people and contrast it to how things were in Judges. What do you think is so significant about the word of God coming back to Samuel when we consider what we have been seeing in Israel up until now? And then in the New Testament, just pay attention to Jesus' teaching on Sabbath. We read so much about it in the Torah. So what is Jesus saying about Sabbath in regarding to pointing to himself as Messiah? Yep. And for me, the Old Testament, uh, just pay attention sometimes to the specific words and phrases. It's like, Israel's like, we want a king. And then the text second half of the sentence, like all the other nations around us. And so <laughs> um, uh, we're going to see this throughout. It's going to happen in the, into Saul too, where Saul like, he's a donkey herder and he's, so he's not a sheep herder. He's a donkey. Like, mm. why does that matter? And so, um, there's little details I think are meant to like, could help us understand what exactly is going on. So just be, a, pay attention to those little details. And then in the new Testament, we're going to enter the world of parables. Um, and, um, the parables are, uh, in and of themselves, even Jesus says they're, they're meant to be confusing to those who can't totally understand them. And, and a lot of them are about the kingdom, uh, answering the question of what is the kingdom like? So remember that as you're reading them, that almost all of them are answering that question, not all of them, but almost all of them are answering the question of what is the kingdom of God like? And as you read that, think through what I was saying about the two part versus three part understanding of how the world works, because I think Jesus's parables often are addressing that question more than other questions. Mm. And so, yeah, but that's it for me. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, guys.